You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is Father Brian Milady for Lesson 2 of the Class of Nature and Grace. And this lesson is going to be more or less in the manner of a reading lesson. In the first lesson, I pointed out that there was a famous debate that went on at the beginning of this century over a work of Cardinal Cajetan's in which he commented on the Summa. And this work was considered to be the definitive commentary on the Summa. Unfortunately, there was a problem, actually there are many problems with this commentary, but one very important problem for this class was over a celebrated difficulty that occupied a lot of articles by theologians in Catholicism at the first half of this century up until Vatican II called the natural desire to see God. In his solution to this question, Cardinal Cajetan maintained that even though St. Thomas uses the term natural desire, for example, let me just give you one text for this. In the Summa Theologiae, the first part, question 12, article 1, St. Thomas says, among other things, there resides in every man a natural desire to know the cause of any effect which he sees and thence arises wonder in men. But if the intellect of the rational creature, and the rational creature means both men and angels here, people that have reason, beings that have reason, angels and men, could not reach as far as the first cause of things, the natural desire would remain void, hence it must be absolutely granted that the blessed see the essence of God. In other words, St. Thomas is saying, that there's a natural desire to know the final explanation for nature. Nature is the effects. The first cause here would be God, and he's saying that we have to be able to see God in the face in order for this natural desire to be complete. Well, when Cardinal Cajetan commented on this text, he said there is no natural desire to see God. Instead, he maintained, that by nature, examining the powers of the soul, intellect, will, emotions, and body, man could be happy with only knowing God as the cause of the world, but not with directly experiencing Him. Now, Father de Lubach and Father Rahner took this up as a challenge to answer this. I believe that their criticism of Cardinal Cajetan's position was correct, because I do believe that Cardinal Cajetan placed an unnatural distinction between nature and grace. The trouble is that their solution is worse because they do away with the powers of nature considered as a whole, as the place where man becomes naturally capable of God. And in order to back myself up on this, I want to read some texts of St. Thomas to you. Now, Cardinal Cajetan wrote a commentary on the Summa Theologiae, but there's another work in St. Thomas where the question of the natural desire to see God is taken up. And taken up in a much more evident fashion 
than it is in the Summa Theologiae. And this is a book called the Summa Contra Gentiles. Although St. Thomas did not title the book that, people have come to refer to it that way throughout the centuries. The Summa Contra Gentiles was actually entitled The Book of the Catholic Faith Against the Errors of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, according to St. Thomas and other works, refer to everyone, all errors. In other words, they refer to the Christian heresies, they refer to Jewish errors, they refer to many, many different, even philosophical errors. The unfortunate thing is that this book, Summa Contra Gentiles, has traditionally been interpreted to be a missionary manual that St. Thomas wrote for the use of Dominican missionaries, an apologetic work against Moors and Jews in Spain. Now, there is a source in the Middle Ages that says St. Thomas was asked to write a book for use by Dominican missionaries, but the book isn't named in the source. This book was called or thought to be the Summa Contra Gentiles, but it's not. For one thing, in chapter 9 of book 1 of this work, where St. Thomas talks about who the work is destined for, he says it's destined for the training and education of the faithful, and not just missionary faithful, of all the faithful. St. Thomas also divides the book into two parts. The first part are the truths of our faith that are open to the investigation of reason alone. The second part are the truths of our faith which reason could discuss but never prove in any sense. They're what are called probable arguments of reason, not demonstrative arguments of reason. So, the first three books have to do with truths of faith that are open to the investigation of reason alone. In other words, truths of faith that philosophers could have discussed. And then we have the truths of faith that aren't open to the investigation of reason alone. Then that's in book four, and that's where things like the Trinity and the Incarnation and the sacraments are discussed. Our particular problem, the natural desire to see God, is discussed in book three, which is about divine providence. Here I have the book, in case you're interested in ever getting it, in its present printing, which is by the University of Notre Dame Press, in its English translation. Now, in this book, St. Thomas, in the section on divine providence, talks about what human destiny is. In chapter 25, he delineates the fact, and remember, these are truths of faith that could be open to the discussion of reason alone, that the end of every intellectual substance, that's to say both man and angels, as opposed to the ends or the purposes of all the other things that exist in nature, is to understand God. In one of the paragraphs of this chapter, paragraph 11, he says this. Now see if you can see how closely this paralleled the source I used for you before, the Summa. There is naturally present in all men the desire to know the causes of whatever things are observed. Hence, because of wondering about things that were seen but whose causes were hidden, men first began to think philosophically. When they found the cause, they were satisfied. Now, does that language sound familiar to you? If you saw lesson one, that's almost exactly what Aristotle says in the metaphysics. So these are truths of faith that are open to reason alone. 
but the search did not stop until it reached the first cause. For then do men think that we know perfectly when we know the first cause. And that's a direct quotation from Aristotle's Metaphysics. Therefore, man naturally desires as his ultimate end to know the first cause. But the first cause of all things is God. Therefore, the ultimate end of man is to know God. And in paragraph 14, St. Thomas says, the ultimate end of man and of every intellectual substance is called felicity or happiness because this is what every intellectual substance desires as an ultimate end and for its own sake alone. Therefore, the ultimate happiness and felicity of every intellectual substance is to know God. He doesn't say because man was created in grace this is the case. He says this is because the intellect is present in man and angels. And then he proves that this is also the end, both by faith and by reason. First, he says in paragraph 15, and so in Matthew 5, 8, we read, Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. And John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And reason, paragraph 16, with this view, the judgment of Aristotle is also in agreement. In the last book of his Ethics, where he says that the ultimate felicity of man is speculative in accordance with the contemplation of the best object of speculation, and the best object of speculation would be, in this case, God. Now, from chapter 25 to chapter 50, with a few exceptions, St. Thomas then examines what kind of action happiness or the ultimate destiny of life can consist in. In the first chapter after 25, chapter 26, he asks if happiness can consist in an act of the will. And he says this is impossible. The reason is because we don't arrive at things that are good by the will, or I should say we don't experience them directly by the will. You know, if the will could make you happy, then what you could say is that a person who loves spaghetti should be able to be happy with just willing it and not with tasting it. Or a miser who loves money should be able to be happy with just desiring money instead of with actually possessing it. The will leads you to the possession of such things, but the will doesn't in itself bring that possession within you. Happiness then can't be an act of the will. St. Thomas answers this question in chapter 8, for example, where he says, therefore happiness or felicity consists substantially and principally in an act of the intellect rather than in an act of the will, because it's in the intellect, it's in knowledge that we take things in and experience them within us. In paragraph 16 of the same chapter, he says, If one thing has another thing as its external end, then the operation whereby the first thing primarily obtains the second will be called the ultimate end of the first thing. Thus, for those to whom money is an end, the miser, we say that to possess money is their end, but not the loving of it, nor the craving of it. Because, again, if the craving could give it to you, you'd be happy with the craving. So that operation of man is substantially his happiness or his felicity, whereby he primarily attains to God. 
This is an act of understanding, for we cannot will what we do not understand. Therefore, the ultimate felicity of man lies substantially in knowing God through his intellect and not just in an act of the will. Then, in the next few chapters, St. Thomas ticks off one by one what men normally put their happiness in, and he tries to show why this can't still the powers of man, the powers of the soul considered in themselves. I think it was in St. Augustine's City of God where he said that a pagan philosopher, Marcus Vero, once took a poll of all the various goods that people considered their ultimate happiness to consist in. Marcus Vero, I think it's he, said that there were 600 goods, and St. Augustine said neither one of them were the right answer. None of the 600 goods were the right answer. Well, what many people tried to do was to reduce these 600 goods to a few, and then examine whether they could bring the human soul to its ultimate fulfillment. Aristotle does this, Plato does this, Cicero does this, many, many people do this, and St. Thomas does the same thing. First he asks if human happiness can consist in the pleasures of the flesh. And he rules this out for many reasons. First of all, because pleasure isn't a good in itself, it's an adjunct good, it accompanies goods. Secondly, because pleasures have to be moderated in order to truly be goods. You know, if you were to say, well, I think my ultimate good consists in wine. Well, just have as much of wine as you can have and see what's going to happen to you. Eventually you're going to get sick, you're going to get a headache, and it's going to become unpleasant. So the pleasures have to be moderated if we're going to experience them as true goods. In paragraph 7 of chapter 27 of the Summa Contra Gentilis, St. Thomas says this, Something which is not good unless it is moderated is not good of itself. Rather, it receives goodness from the source of the moderation. Now, the enjoyment of the aforementioned pleasures is not good for man unless it be moderated. Otherwise, these pleasures will interfere with each other. So, the pleasure of wine interferes with the pleasure of not having a headache. So, these pleasures are not of themselves the good for man. But that which is the highest good is the good of itself because what is good of itself is better than what depends on something else. Therefore, such pleasures are not the highest goods of man. And of course, they depend on something else being present. In chapter 28, St. Thomas discusses honor. You know, there are many people who look on honor as the ultimate reason for which they exist. If they could just win the Academy Award, that would fill their life. The trouble is, it doesn't. And the reason is because the honors that men give, first of all, are often given erroneously. They often honor people who shouldn't be honored. And secondly, honor is always given for something else. It's given because you've done something else or accomplished something else or witnessed something else, and therefore it can't be the highest of goods. For example, St. Thomas in paragraphs 5 and 6 says this, To be worthy of honor can only be an attribute of good men. But it's possible for even evil men to be honored. So it's better to become worthy of honor than to be honored, therefore honor is not the highest good. In other words, it's being worthy of honor that would be the highest good. Furthermore, the highest good is the perfect good, but the perfect good is completely exclusive of evil. Now that in which there is no evil cannot itself be evil. Therefore that which is in possession of the highest good cannot be evil. 
but it's possible for a bad man to attain honor. So honor is not the highest good for man. In chapter 29, St. Thomas talks about glory. Glory is where you not only are worthy of honor and receive an honor, but everybody knows about it. In other words, you become famous. Now this can't be the highest good of man, because for one thing, as we know, charm is deceptive and beauty fleeting, and so is fame. Today you're the hero, tomorrow you're the goat. You pass from one to another rather easily. Once you get your fame, you try to keep it, but it's just not easy to keep. I mean, you know, today's Gloria Swanson, who's the film picture star, is tomorrow's murderess in Sunset Boulevard, who's gone completely out of her tree because nobody knows who she is anymore. She hasn't got glory. In paragraph 6 and 7 of chapter 29, St. Thomas says, The highest good should be perfect and should satisfy the appetite. Now the knowledge associated with fame in which human glory consists is imperfect, for it is possessed of the greatest uncertainty and error. Therefore such glory cannot be the highest good. Furthermore, the highest good for man should be what is most enduring among human affairs, for an endless duration of good is naturally desired. The good that people have, they naturally desire to possess without limit in time, in perpetuity. Now glory in the sense of fame is the least permanent of things. In fact, nothing is more variable than opinion and human praise. Therefore, such glory is not the highest good for man. There are some people that think that the highest good, the deepest, should consist in riches. But again, riches are merely a means to something else, and they also are subject to fate. You know, today you have a million dollars, tomorrow the stock market crashes and you have nothing. And riches give themselves also to power. Now, you know, power can't be a great good because it can be used for ill. So, again, it can't involve perfection. It can't involve ultimate good, always possessed, an unlimited way that can never be lost. The fact that riches are connected with power is seen very graphically in an ancient fairy tale, The Fisherman's Wife. I don't know if you've ever read this fairy tale, but I think it's in Grimm's. And there was a fisherman who had a wife, and the fisherman caught a fish that said he was an enchanted prince. And the fish said, if you'll just throw me back, I'll grant you whatever your heart desires. Well, the fisherman was a very simple man, and he didn't want anything, so he threw the fish back. But when he went home, his wife was not quite so simple. And she said, well, you dope, the least you could have asked for is a nicer house. So he went back and asked the fish, and he got a nice house. Well, every time she got what she wanted, she was satisfied with it for a little less period of time. Happiness doesn't consist in riches. Riches make you unhappy because you want to keep what you've got or make more. It always makes you crave more. And eventually, her desires for wealth turned into the desire for power. So. First she wanted a mansion, then she wanted a castle, then she wanted to be the mayor, then she wanted to be the governor, then she wanted to be the king, then she wanted to be the emperor, and finally she wanted to be pope. And so she got being pope. I guess she was the first woman priest. And he came back and he saw her enthroned on the papal throne with the tiara and everybody incensing her. And she was satisfied with that overnight. And she woke up the next morning and said, go and tell the fish it's still not enough. I can't command the sun to rise and set by my own will. Go and tell the fish I want to be God. And so she lost everything that she had. So riches and power 
can't be the ultimate goods of human life, and therefore St. Thomas concludes that ultimate goods can't lie in goods of the body because they're common to both men and animals, and they can't lie in goods of the senses either. So once we go up above the level of the senses, then we get into goods of the soul. Can ultimate goods consist in living the life of virtue? Well, not really. And the reason is because virtue is a tendency or a disposition to good or to integrity. But virtue isn't that integrity itself. In other words, it's a preparation for further actions. And St. Thomas examines this by talking about, for example, the virtue of prudence. Could ultimate happiness lie in the virtue of prudence? Chapter 35. In paragraph 4 he says, That which is ordered to another thing as an end is not the ultimate felicity for man. But the operation of prudence is ordered to something else as an end, both because it's practical knowledge, it has to do with doing deeds, and because prudence makes a man well disposed in regards to things that are to be for the sake of the end, therefore prudence can't be the end, nor can the moral virtues of justice, temperance, and fortitude. Rather, and then this is the point, the happiness of man has to consist in the contemplation of God. In chapter 37, he explains this very clearly, and by the way, this is the same conclusion that Aristotle arrives at. Paragraph 7. All other human operations seem to be ordered to this one as an end. For there is needed for the perfection of contemplation a soundness of body, to which all the products of human technology, art, that are necessary for life are directed. Also required are freedom from the disturbances of the passions. This is achieved through the moral virtues and prudence, and freedom from external disorders, to which the whole program of civil life is directed. And so, if they are rightly considered, all human functions may be seen to subserve the contemplation of truth. And in paragraph 9, from this, that is also clear by ways of induction, which was proved above by rational arguments, namely, that the ultimate felicity of man consists only in the contemplation of God, wisdom or divine matters. Now, this could lead us to Cardinal Cajetan's conclusion that wisdom would consist in man knowing God as the cause of the world, of the cause of the effects which we experience here in the world. In the next few chapters then, St. Thomas examines the various ways in which man can know God in this life, and there are three. The first is by a general and confused knowledge. All people are accustomed to call on God. The Christian tradition teaches that men are naturally theistic. You have to be convinced to be an atheist. Everybody naturally calls on God. The trouble is that this natural calling on God is very confused. Some people think God is a rock. Some people think he's a tree. Some people think he's the sun. The Greeks, for example, in their pantheon, thought that the gods were these monstrous human beings who were just constantly doing terrible, terrible things to each other just to keep power. They were jealous and vindictive and all that stuff. I mean, if you ever saw the series I, Claudius, you may remember that Caligula thought he was Zeus. He thought he was a god, one of the emperors of Rome. And he married his sister because Zeus married his sister, Hera. And then Zeus was nervous 
that Hera's child that he conceived would rival him in power, and so in Greek mythology, he ripped the child from the womb and devoured it. Well, that's what Caligula did to his sister. You know, the gods did these terrible things. And so the second way of knowing God is to criticize the normal, confused, natural way people have of calling on God through reason. Now, the trouble is that sometimes when you do that, you have to do away with the pagan gods. And you may remember, if you know anything about Greek philosophy, that that was the charge made against Socrates, that he was a corrupter of the youth because he taught them atheism. Now, why did the Greeks in Athens think Socrates taught them atheism? The reason was because he examined through true reason and philosophy what the Greek pantheon's conception of the gods were and found them very wanting when it came to be the absolute good. So he did away with their gods in order to establish the true God, and that's why they thought he was an atheist. It's possible to arrive at the true picture of God through reason alone. The church defines that. There are, for example, five proofs for the existence of God in St. Thomas's Summa by which he maintains that philosophers can and have arrived at the existence of the one true God, who is the God of the Christians also. The difficulty is that we are called, as I have maintained all throughout this series, to communion with God, and not just to God as the cause of the world, not just to God as the absolute being, not just to God as the necessary being, but to the God which is the Trinity, and to the Trinity as we arrive at Him through Christ. Now, it's not possible to know that God is a trinity or that Christ is God by reason alone. And therefore, there's a third way of knowing God, which is through faith. If Cajetan were right, first of all, a person should be able to be happy with knowing God through reason, but even more so, they should be happy with being able to know God through faith. Now, let's see what St. Thomas has to say about this, because in chapter 38, he addresses whether someone can be happy in the general knowledge of God possessed by all men. In chapter 39, whether a person can be happy as their ultimate end with knowing God as the cause through effects like the philosophers. And in chapter 40, with knowing God through faith. In paragraph 6 of chapter 37, he says, The knowledge that one has of a thing only in a general way and not according to something proper to it is very imperfect. Just like the knowledge one might have of a man, one, one simply knows that he is moved. Now, what does he mean by this? He means that suppose you're looking at somebody and you see them way off in the distance and you know it's a man, but that's all you know. Well, you want a much clearer perception of that man. Who is this man before knowledge can be stilled? Now, that's the kind of knowledge that people generally have, but they want a clearer picture. For example, these great gods that are all rivaling each other and doing terrible things. They want a picture that's more true. The philosophers can and have arrived at this picture, but can their happiness consist in this knowledge? In paragraph 6 of the next chapter, he says, the will rests its desire when it has attained the ultimate end. But the ultimate end of all human knowledge is happiness. So that knowledge of God which when acquired leaves no knowledge of a knowable object to be desired is essentially this happiness. But this is not the kind of knowledge about God that the philosophers were able to get through demonstrations. Because even when we acquire this knowledge, we desire to know other things that are not known through this knowledge. 
Therefore, happiness is not found in such a knowledge of God. If Cajun were right, it should be able to be found there. So St. Thomas maintains that it's not possible to still the desire of man to know by knowing God as a cause through effects. The third manner of knowledge is the knowledge of faith. And if Cajun were right, and you should be able to still the powers of man just naturally speaking by knowing God as a cause through effects, then a fortiori, faith should still add even more. But St. Thomas maintains that the ultimate happiness, the ultimate good, can't consist in this knowledge either. And in fact, not only does this knowledge not bring a person's soul to rest, but it actually pushes it more. This is the way he puts it. This is in paragraph 5 of chapter 40. Moreover, through felicity, because it is the ultimate end, natural desire comes to rest. There's our famous phrase again, natural desire. Now the knowledge of faith does not bring rest to desire, but rather sets it aflame. Since every man desires to see what he believes. Remember the famous definition of faith in St. Paul is that it is the essence of things unseen, the substance of things to be hoped for. Far from putting a rest to this desire, it sets it aflame. So man's ultimate felicity does not lie in the knowledge of faith. Furthermore, the knowledge of God has been called the end because it is joined to the ultimate end of things, that is, to God. But an item of belief is not made perfectly present to the intellect by the knowledge of faith, since faith is of things absent, not of things present. For this reason, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-7, through 7, that while we are in the body, we walk by faith, and we are absent from the Lord. Yet God is brought into the presence of love through faith, since the believer ascends to God voluntarily, that Christ may dwell by faith in our hearts. Therefore, it's not possible for ultimate human happiness to consist in the knowledge of faith. Well, what kind of knowledge can bring happiness to our souls? Well, first of all, St. Thomas is very clear that it's not a knowledge which we can have in this life. That in this life, neither we nor the angels, in, according to their existence, by nature, are able to see God in his essence. And it's only of this kind of knowledge that it's possible for us to have our desire finally stilled. He speaks about this in chapter 48, that in this life we cannot see the essence of God, but we see things only through a glass darkly. And then in chapter 47, and then in chapter 48, he boldly maintains that the happiness of man cannot consist in this life. And here are some examples. Paragraph 1 of chapter 48. If then ultimate human happiness does not consist in the knowledge of God, and notice how he rules out what we've talked about so far, whereby he is known in general by all, or most men, by a sort of confused appraisal, and again, if it does not consist in the knowledge of God, which is known by way of demonstration in the speculative sciences, that would be philosophy, nor in the cognition of God, whereby he is known through faith, as has been shown in the foregoing, 
And if it is not possible in this life to reach a higher knowledge of God so as to know Him through His essence, or even in such a way that when the other separated substances are known, that's the angels, and our human soul without the body after death, God might be known through the knowledge of them, as if from a closer vantage point, as we have shown, and if it is necessary to identify human happiness with some sort of knowledge of God, as we proved above, then it is not possible for man's ultimate happiness to come in this life. And at the end of this chapter, he says this very plainly, as long as anything is in motion toward perfection, it is not yet at the ultimate end. But all men, while learning the truth, are always disposed as beings in motion and as tending toward perfection, because men who come later made other discoveries over and above those found out by earlier men, as Aristotle states again in his Metaphysics. So, men in the process of learning the truth are not situated as if they were at the ultimate end. Thus, since man's ultimate happiness in this life seems mainly to consist in speculation or theoretical thought whereby the knowledge of truth is sought, as Aristotle himself proves in Ethics 10, so Aristotle knew this, it's impossible to say that man achieves his ultimate end in this life. And then he talks about the fact that some people did think, perhaps, that there was some way you could achieve your ultimate end in this life, and St. Thomas responds by saying this, paragraph 15, On this point there is abundant evidence of how even the brilliant minds of these men suffered from the narrowness of their point of view, from which narrow attitudes we shall be freed if we grant in accord with the foregoing proofs that man can reach true felicity after this life when man's soul is existing immortally. In chapter 49, then, he explains that though we exist after this life and our soul separated from the body, he wants to know if we are happy with knowing God as the cause through effects like the angels are. The angels certainly know that they're effects of God, and the first thing evident to their experience is themselves. And since the angels have a much more perfect knowledge, I mean more philosophically acute knowledge than we do, wouldn't it be possible for them to be happy, to have their desire stilled to know by just knowing God as a cause through them? So in chapter 49, he says, we must inquire whether this knowledge whereby the separated substances and the soul after death know God through themselves suffices for their ultimate happiness. And he gives many arguments for saying to show the divine essence is not known through such kind of knowledge and that the angels nor our souls after death are happy in this way. Here's an example, paragraph 9. A separated substance, that's to say an angel or a human soul after death, does know through its own substance that God is, that he is the cause of all things, that he is eminent above all and set apart from all, not only from things which exist, but also from things which can be conceived by the created mind. Even we are able to reach this knowledge of God here on earth in some sense, for we know Him through His effects, philosophers. We know that God is, that He is the cause of all things, that He is supereminent over all other things and set apart from them. But this is the ultimate and most perfect limit of our knowledge in this life. As a famous author of the ancient world, Dionysius says in Mystical Theology, we are united with God as the unknown. 
Indeed, this is the situation, for while we know of God what He is, not what He is remains quite unknown. Hence, to manifest this ignorance of this sublime knowledge, it is said of Moses that he went to the dark cloud wherein God was. And then St. Thomas ends this section by saying, finally, it is obvious that the more the large number and the great importance of the effects of a cause become known, the more does the causality of the cause and its power become known. As a result, it becomes clear that angels and souls separated from the body know the causality of God and his power better than we do, even though we know that he is the cause of beings. But in chapter 50 then, which is a pivotal chapter in this work and in all of our discussion, he then proves by six arguments, none of which mentions Adam being created in grace, none of which mentions the will that, and I quote from the first paragraph in chapter 50, it is impossible for the natural desire in separated substances, angels and human souls after death to come to rest in such a knowledge of God. In other words, knowing him as the cause through effects. And I'd like to summarize these six arguments in a kind of form of a syllogism. They are these, and if you're interested and you have the book or you can get it off the internet, you can find it beginning in paragraph two. So in other words, the six arguments go up to paragraph seven, and they are these. What is imperfect desires perfection, but the knowledge of God the angels have through examining themselves is imperfect because they don't see him directly. Therefore, the angels seek to know God in himself and not through his effects, and so do we. Secondly, one who knows an effect desires to know its cause. Remember, that was the argument from Aristotle. Angels know they are effects of God and so do the separated souls. And so they desire to know the cause in itself, God in himself. Third, one who knows the existence of something desires to know its essence, its nature. The angels certainly know that God exists, and so do the souls separated from the body. Therefore, they desire to know his essence. Fourth, nothing finite fulfills the power of the intellect but the angels are finite. Therefore, the angels in knowing God through themselves as finite cannot fulfill the desire of the intellect to know. Fifth, someone who desires knowledge flees ignorance, but the angels know that God surpasses their natural knowledge of him, and so they're ignorant of him. Since they're ignorant, they desire to escape their ignorance, to rid themselves of their ignorance, they have in regards to God, and so to see him in the face. Sixth, the closer a thing comes to an end, the more it desires the end. Now, if Cajun were right, then it was possible for someone with an intellect to be happy with just knowing God as the cause through effects, considering merely the powers of the soul, then again, a fortiori, that should be true of the angels, because they're closer to God than we are, and they know that God is the cause of them as an effect better. But St. Thomas says they desire to know God more in his essence than men do. And finally, there's an argument that's taken from the metaphysics of creation of the human soul. 
And that is in the section that I read to you from the Summa about the natural desire to know God, there's also a very beautiful text and a very beautiful quotation where St. Thomas explains that since the soul cannot be generated from matter, can't be brought forth from matter, that every human person has to result from a direct act of creation on the part of God, that that means that the end of a thing is the same as its beginning. And since the human soul came forth as the result of a direct act of creation on the part of God, so the human soul must return directly to God and not indirectly through just knowing him as the cause through effects. This is the way it's put. For the ultimate perfection of the rational creature is to be found in that which is the principle of its being. Since a thing is perfect in so far as it returns to that from which it began. So what we began from was the mother and the father who prepared the material part of ourselves in the womb of the mother, but God directly creates the soul. And there's another beautiful quotation here. This is in the first part of the Summa, question 12, article 8, reply to objection 4, where again St. Thomas talks about the natural desire to see God, and he couples this up with St. Augustine. This is what he says. The natural desire of the rational creature is to know everything that belongs to the perfection of the intellect, which is the species and genera of things and their types. And these everyone who sees the divine essence will see in God. But to know other singular things, their thoughts, their deeds, does not belong to the perfection of the created intellect, nor does its natural desire go out to these things. What are these things? These things are newspaper stuff, magazine stuff, CNN stuff. That doesn't in any sense perfect the intellect. The perfection of the intellect is rather in the natures of things. Neither again does it desire to know things that don't exist yet, but which God could call into being if he wanted to. What our intellect wants to know is the cause of the things we actually experience, not what God could have created, but this world in which we live. Yet, if God alone were seen, who is the font and principle of all being and of all truth, he would so fill the natural desire of knowledge that nothing else would be desired and the seer would be completely beatified. Hence, St. Augustine says, and I love this quotation, from the Confessions, chapter 5. Unhappy is the one who does not know you, God, even if he knows everything else. Happy is the one who knows you, even if he knows nothing else. And the one who knows you and all the other things isn't any happier for knowing all the other things than he would be for knowing you alone. I'm going to say that again, see if you can remember it. Unhappy is the one who does not know you, but knows all the other things. Happy is the one who knows you, even if he knows nothing else. And the one who knows you and all the other things isn't any happier for knowing all the other things than he would be for knowing you alone. 
Why is this true? It's true because of the presence of the intellect in man. In other words, there is no other reason for the necessity of grace to perfect nature than the fact that we have an intellect. St. Thomas concludes chapter 50 where the six arguments were given thusly, beginning in paragraph 8. The conclusion from these considerations is that the ultimate happiness of separated substances, men after death and angels, does not lie in the knowledge of God in which they know Him through their substances, exactly contrary to what Cajetan thought. For their desires still lead them on toward God's substance. Also, quite apparent from this conclusion is the fact that ultimate happiness is to be sought in nothing else than an operation or action of the intellect, since no desire carries on to such sublime heights as the desire to understand the truth. Indeed, all our desires for pleasure or other things of this sort that are craved by men can be satisfied with other things. But the aforementioned desire does not rest until it reaches God, the highest point of reference for and the maker of things. This is why wisdom appropriately states in Ecclesiasticus 24-7, I dwelt in the highest places, and my throne is in a pillar of cloud. And Proverbs 9-3 says, that wisdom invites her maids, by her maids, invites to the tower. And then St. Thomas concludes, now think about what he's done. He's examined all these various goods in which the perfection of man can consist. And he's found all of them wanting. He stated, therefore, that only when a person directly perceives God, something he'll prove later you can do by a special light given to your mind without medium, is it possible for that first time when the kid asked why for the intellect to be finally stilled? And he says this then, Let those men be ashamed then who seek man's felicity in the most inferior things when it is so highly situated. Uh, you know, St. Thomas doesn't normally speak vociferously about much. But here, he's obviously not speaking in only a detached frame of mind. He says, let those people be ashamed who try to place ultimate human destiny in something else. It can only be in the direct knowledge of God. And the Catechism explains this as our happiness or our beatitude. And oddly enough, uses rather similar terms to St. Thomas in the moral section. If you look to 1718, the Catechism says this, the Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it. And then they make several quotations, among which is St. Thomas's, where he says, and that Teresa of Avila echoed him three centuries or four centuries later, God alone satisfies. Yeah, that's St. Thomas. And then the Catechism continues in 1720, the New Testament uses several expressions to characterize the beatitude to which God calls man. The coming of the kingdom of God is one. The vision of God, why the vision of God? Obviously, God doesn't have a face. St. Paul says we see him face to face. 
What he means is, you know, when you're standing touching noses, the New Yorkers have an expression for this, being in your face. There's no medium. There's nothing between you. So there's no created medium between us and God in heaven. The vision of God, where it's stated, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, entering into the joy of the Lord and entering into God's rest. And then the Catechism quotes this beautiful quotation from St. Augustine, and I particularly love it because I, oddly enough, used it on my ordination card many years ago, before the Catechism was written. There we shall rest and see. We shall see and love. We shall love and praise. Behold what will be at the end without end. This is the beginning of the moral section on the Catechism because it talks about the ultimate end to which we're called. This is the basis for all human life and it's also the basis for all Christian ideas about grace. Grace is the means which God has given us here in this world to elevate and prepare ourselves for His vision in the next world. It is our relationship to grace that determines how perfect we are as human beings, our share in God's nature. God alone can elevate us to this, but when He does this, this is far from a destruction of our nature, but it's a preparation to realize it. You know, St. Teresa, when she was a little girl, she used to say something that the Catechism uses just before number 2548. St. Teresa was accustomed to say, and I can imagine her stamping her foot saying it like little girls who want their own way, I want to see God. That's what she used to say. I want to see God because this is the nature of all human life. And the Catechism ends its moral section then by saying, Desire for true happiness frees man from his immoderate attachment to the goods of this world so that he can find his fulfillment in the vision and beatitude of God. It remains for holy people to struggle with grace from on high to obtain the good things God promises. On this way of perfection, the Spirit and the Bride call whoever hears them to perfect communion with God, and then St. Augustine is quoted again. There will true glory be where no one will be praised. Notice how all these things we've been talking about are summarized here. By mistake or flattery, true honor will not be refused to the worthy nor granted to the unworthy. Likewise, no one unworthy will pretend to be worthy where only those who are worthy will be admitted. There true peace will reign where no one will experience opposition either from self or others. God himself will be virtue's reward. He gives virtue and has promised to give himself as the best and greatest reward that could exist. I shall be their God and they will be my people. This is also the meaning of the Apostle Paul's words, so that God may be all in all. God himself will be the goal of our desires. We shall contemplate him without end, love him without surfeit, praise him without weariness. This gift, this state, this act, like eternal life itself, will assuredly be common to all. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.